Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially women and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. These episodes will likely be coming out during the second lockdown, so please look after each other, self-care as much as possible, and be kind to yourself. It does not matter if the only objective you have during this time is getting through it. That bar is high enough for me, for sure. Back to the show, and as you know, every pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Do you ever have nights out or spontaneous moments where you meet someone and they end up being a part of your life for years, or even decades to come? My next guest is someone who fits that bill for me. His name is Jay Fisher. Jay is a poet photographer and the founder of Another Letter J, where he writes poetry for your dark times, good times and all the times in between. The origin of Jay's poetry platform came from a huge negative in his life and now he has turned it into an outlet for self-expression, creativity and has found a special way for him to vent. Me and Jay met at a gig for one of my favourite pop punk bands, Kids in Glass Houses. It was only thanks to vent champion and mind on the game guest Jay Williams that the two spare tickets I was desperately trying to fill were taken by him and his mate Jay who he brought along. It was also at that night I met lifelong friends Rachel, Charlie and Dan who I've shared some of the best memories of my life with at Yumi at Six concerts throughout my teenage years, adolescence and adult life. In this pod we discuss Jay's poetry journey, relationships and much much more. This is how our conversation went. Jay, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. It was only fair that after I had Jay Williams on the pod, I had to get his longtime friend, Jay Fisher, on the pod as well. First off, how are you, bro? I'm very good, mate. Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. Surviving, surviving. That is the term I'm using for second lockdown, for sure. I mentioned it in the intro, mate, but we met because of a Kids in Glass Houses gig in 2010 at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Absolutely crazy how that is 10 years ago now. Do you want to tell the listeners your memories of that night and how we first met? Honestly, one of my favourite memories of any gig ever, because that was actually my first ever gig. I think I told you that at the time, yeah. But yeah, my first ever gig and Kids in Glass Houses at the time, I was so like such a big fan of. So I was like buzzing that I just got to go to this gig on a whim. I think it was like a few days before or something that you asked us. And Jay just happened to like ask me. And he didn't even know I liked them at the time. I think he was just like, oh, you're my friend. Do you want to come join? And yeah, it just ended up being like a great night. I think we met a couple of good friends of yours still, didn't we? Like a couple of those guys on that night as well. Met you for the first time, which was amazing. And yeah, just beautiful, beautiful time. And I, I just remember being so elated by the end of it that I got to see live music. I think that really kicked off a passion that I have now with photography and everything else too. Do you think it's crazy how if I hadn't been able to like talk to Jay or I hadn't just messaged him on a whim saying, I've got two spare tickets, can you come and bring a friend? Like we wouldn't have met, we wouldn't have had these memories and we wouldn't be doing this pod now. Yeah, mate, honestly, absolutely crazy. Like, I, I think about this a lot, like there's pinnacle moments in your life where you you just meet people or like, and these people end up having a massive impact on you. Like, wow. And if not for that one moment, that one decision could have all changed or all completely been different. We'll talk about those pinnacle moments later on in the pod, mate. But you've got such an interesting journey. We've got so much to crack on with. So shall we just get started? 
Let's kick off the pod, Jay, by talking about your poetry platform, Another Letter J, mate. First off, why did you feel inspired to create this platform and where did your love for writing poetry begin? So Another Letter J came from, at first it was actually anonymous. So I wanted to express, it was after a breakup, after a really, really big breakup. And I needed a way to sort of vent and express a lot of my just heavy emotions at the time, as a lot of people sort of feel and been through. One of the ways I've always expressed myself is through words, is through writing and poetry in particular. I've always enjoyed sort of creative writing. And poetry was one of those things, ironically, at the start of that relationship before we got together, I did actually write a lot of poetry that I ended up deleting. I think more out of embarrassment because sort of other people had seen them and friends of my ex at the time and I had sort of like laughed about it a bit. So like I, I ended up actually deleting some of those earlier ones that I wrote. And yeah, after the breakup, I sort of got to a point where I needed an outlet and I needed something to project these feelings. And poetry and that platform, Another Letter J, became that for me. Before we get to the moment where you switched the anonymity to public, I know there might be an obvious answer to this question, but tell the listeners where the name came from and how you came up with it. It feels like you've taken Rachel Riley's spot during the Letters on Countdown when you say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, so um, another... <laughs> Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> Another letter J came from essentially a lot of the poetry I was writing seemed like letters and it felt like I was writing letters and it was, it was very much my emotions at the time. So they were very heavy. And it was almost that I, probably you've, you've heard of before where people say, if you have like these really hard to deal with emotions, you write a letter and you burn the letter. And it's a very good way to sort of relieve them without having to tell the person. And I think this is just maybe a more modern version of that, where I wasn't writing letters necessarily, but I was writing poetry that was becoming posts. And in a way, I also wanted to help other people if they, they were dealing with similar things. So I guess that's why I liked the idea of posting it and anonymously as well. So it wasn't anyone could link it back to me or my ex at the time or anything like that. It was just a space where anyone who could relate could read them and share them or save them or read them again, whatever they wanted to do. And anyone who couldn't relate didn't need to bother with it because it wasn't anything like, oh, that's Jay's poetry. I need to follow that. So yeah, that's sort of where it came from. And the another letter, obviously just being writing constant letters of poetry to this girl that I was still in love with at the time. You wrote a poem for Vent anonymously as well, which I dug out from the archives ages ago. I actually forgot you wrote a poem for Vent. I did. <laughs> Can you remember that poem? Not off the top of my head, but it might be somewhere on my phone. Do, do you remember what I, um... to be fair, if, if I've written it down, I've, I've got it on my phone somewhere probably. Yeah, I forgot about that. Jeez, that was a while ago, wasn't it? What was the moment or period where you decided to go from anonymous to public? Oh, that's a really good question, actually. I, I think I got to a point where I was aware that I was more okay, I guess. So before when I had all these feelings, and, and bear in mind, I had a lot of friends who mutually knew my ex as well. So there was a lot of feelings that I didn't want people projecting onto her as well. I didn't want them to sort of bring my emotions that I was obviously heavily feeling at the time. and feeling bad about her because I don't feel like people's relationships should affect other people's friendships. So I think it was after a moment where I felt like I'd gotten over the worst of it and I'd gotten over the part that hurt the most, I guess. I was a bit more proud as well because I was starting to write things that I was just becoming very, very proud of how I'd worded things and how I was like projecting things in this way of poetry. I felt like I was getting better. And in that case, it was sort of that moment of, I, I want to share, I want to share this stuff that I'm now proud of, this work that I'm proud of that. It's still emotional and it's still deep, but it's not, like if people were to come up and ask me about it and then that I posted, they wouldn't have had me crying in a corner. They would have had me <laughs> expressing myself and expressing my emotions a bit more clearly. And again, it felt like another way that I could help people where 
if people knew I was writing that stuff and knew I was feeling those things, maybe they could come to me and talk about those things as well with me or if they needed to as well. Somewhere in that, was there also a case of you feeling like the stigma was removing so you could feel like you could go public? Or was it a case of you wanting to go public so you could remove the stigma yourself, if that makes sense? Oh, mate, that's a very good question. You're, you're very good at this one. I think a bit of both, to be honest. I've always felt like myself, I can be someone who helps break cycles and helps break stigmas, I guess. I've always been a big advocate of men showing emotions and having emotions, I guess. So it was sort of very fitting for me to become that, become that person who I would look up to breaking that cycle and showing that I didn't see it as a stigma necessarily. But I think also partially there was a feeling of because I'd gotten over the heavy emotions, it sort of the stigma broke itself within me too. So yeah, I think, I think it's a bit of a both on that one, to be honest, mate. You've turned that negative in your life into a huge positive. How do you reflect on that moment looking back? Are you surprised that you did that and you were able to do this and accomplish this and create this platform yourself? Or did you think at the time it was quite insignificant? To be fair, again, a bit of both. Like I was very proud of myself and I think I was proud and it didn't have to be significant in a way. I was very happy to be able to do this and be able to write. And from people who I was close with seeing it at the time, I had a lot of very positive reactions too which were more about the writing because that's what it became about. It became about the way I wrote and how I wrote and the emotions I could try and evoke in other people. It became more about that and the artistic side of it than what it actually was initially, which was the relationship and getting over the relationship. So I'm very proud. I'm still very proud to be able to write in a way that I do. And I know I've still got a long way that I can improve, but looking back on like some of my earlier stuff compared to a lot of my newer stuff, I think I'm very much genuinely proud of the work that I have been producing and the way I can use emotions to be creative. I think that's a very beautiful thing to be able to do. After you got over the worst of your relationship, as you said, what were the themes of the poems that you were writing? Were they purely about the previous relationship still or did you explore other ones as well? Uh, we started getting crazy with, uh, I say we, I, <laughs> we, the, the voices in my head. <laughs> a lot of them were still about the relationship because there was still a lot of parts of that that I was exploring myself but from a different perspective than I had had previously a lot of them started becoming about me rather than about her so I started writing a lot more about my own progression my own self-love my own self-worth that became a big theme towards the end of that era I guess I, I sort of have eras in my head of this poetry too I guess yeah and then as I moved forward they started becoming about other people that I'd sort of met and impacted or had impact me along the way too so there were some about other girls who I maybe dated for a bit in between when I wasn't ready and had maybe projected a lot of my negativity from that relationship into sort of seeing them. Some poems are about people that I'd seen and hurt accidentally or hurt knowing I'd hurt them, but not knowing how to not do it. You know, that sort of thing where you sort of get a bit caught up in, oh, this is new and fun and exciting, but am I ready for it? Probably not. So yeah, a lot, a lot of what I wrote became about current experiences that I was feeling or going through or experiencing myself generally in, in that part of my life for sure. And what impact does writing poetry itself have on your mental health? Is it cathartic for you? Is it healing? Is it escapism? You know, what can you tell me here? All of the above, yeah. It obviously it started as as maybe more of an escapism sort of thing. Now I write for fun. I write sometimes for still always to relieve emotions, especially maybe more negative emotions. I find that's it's always a good channel for me to go through. But oftentimes it's, I'm inspired by more things now. It's not necessarily always about love specifically, or it's not necessarily always about myself or my experiences. Often now I can sort of, 
engage with other people's experiences too I think and I think that's a really important part of how I've developed as a poet or as a writer is being able to empathize more with others around me and they sort of maybe share their experiences with me just person to person and I can relay that back into more creative words for myself and, and maybe for them in some cases too. Talk me through the creative process behind writing a poem now. Do you have to be in a particular headspace to write? Are there places you go to to feel inspired to write? Tell me a bit more about the process itself. I like that question. That's a really good question. Yeah, you know what? My process is quite similar every time, but there's often times that it will change. So my general process is I'll often start with either an emotion or a theme. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something huge. It can be like a, a word prompt I did quite recently just sort of ask people for words to to inspire me to write. But often what happens, the most frequent thing is I'll be sat talking to my friends and having maybe a bit of a deep discussion or I'll hear someone say something and they'll say just a sentence or a few words together that I'm like, oh, that was beautiful. And I, I'm suddenly inspired to write a whole poem about one thing that someone said or again, one thing about maybe something I'm feeling that day if I'm a bit down or if I'm a bit up, <laughs> especially. And I think more so in particular the more impactful emotions the heavy emotions or the best emotions the highest emotions are often the things that are the most inspiring when I'm starting to write. Have you ever experienced writer's block along this journey and if so how have you overcome it or if there are any budding writers or poets listening that might get a few tips from you? Honestly all the time and I think for me the biggest thing is I try not to write when I'm not feeling something of anything like if I'm not inspired by something or if I'm not excited by something or scared of something or anything like that if, if I'm not feeling anything towards it I find my brain doesn't run away as much so the way I write I tend to I get words and verses and choruses and, and things like that that flow or me even songs sometimes like melodies in my head that then inspire me to sort of put words to them and then I sort of hone it down and sometimes like you, you say that about getting writer's block the other day I asked for word prompts from people and Someone gave me a prompt that was, she said, devastating. And I was stuck for a long time because I couldn't get that emotion into me. I couldn't, I couldn't feel devastated. I didn't have anything at that point that I was like, oh, this is devastating. Like I, I couldn't write about it. And I ended up a few days later, she actually texted me and we were talking about my writing and poetry. And she said the word solace and finding solace in creativity. And suddenly I, I sparked a, a poem out of it. And it sort of changed the meaning of how I had to write about devastating for me, I think. So sometimes that, sometimes I start something and I come back to it maybe a week later, maybe a month later. And that's okay. I think I think it's okay to just leave things alone until you're ready to come back to it. And just off the top of your head, what have been some of the poems that have meant the most to you, your mental health, or represented important moments in your life? Very nice. I think one of the big ones for me, especially early on when I started writing poetry again, after the breakup was the first one I wrote, which was a poem called Lightning. Lightning for me, it was a poem all about that breakup. And it was a poem about the immediate emotions you feel after you break up with someone and the torment you go through in your own mind, where you are in love at one moment, and then you hate the person the next moment, and then you want them back, and then you never want to see them again. And then you hear a song that makes you think of them when you're just feeling like you're fine. It's about that roller coaster you go through. That's still one of my favourites as one of the first ones I wrote because it just meant so much at the time. And it was one of my first ways that I expressed how I was feeling that I could start letting go of it, I think. 
We discussed this off air, Jay, so no one thinks this is me ambushing you. But since you mentioned the poem Lightning, I think it would be really great if you performed it on the pod right now. So without further ado, listeners, this is Jay Fisher performing Lightning. I'm trying to be the best new version of me. But that's hard when the old best version was a little less lonely and a little more loved. At least I loved me. It's crazy to think that I built a life around spending time with you. That life came apart, mirroring us, unraveled like cotton on a reel. Too different to stay in love. Your electric blue eyes struck like lightning, and fuck, I see them when I close my eyes. Still remember the way they curved at the edges, the times your eyes told me they loved me too. And I'm so proud of you, I'm so proud of you, I'm so fucking proud of you for the person you've become. I'm so proud that you're fighting those demons. But those demons were mine too. Wrongly mine, but they were there nonetheless. I claimed them as my own because my demons didn't hurt. I tried to be your savior. I am not your savior. You saved yourself. So well that you didn't need me anymore. So well that you grew so much, so strong. So well that we said goodbye. And now I have my own demons. They hurt more than the others. And they're fighting to break me down. Don't worry. Don't fight it. I'll save myself. And now everywhere I go, like in all the movies, there's a constant reminder that you're not in my life and a constant reminder that I'm not in yours. The songs you loved hit me like cruelly timed waves, cold and heavy and powerful. And I don't know if you remember, but I'm not the strongest swimmer. So when your music plays, I'm drowning. But please don't worry and please don't fight it. I'll save myself like you always did, like I always admired. I guess I'll always be inspired by you. I guess I'll always love you just a little or a lot. Those electric blue eyes still strike me like lightning and fuck, I'll always see them when I close my eyes. But this time I'll know how confused they looked, that they don't love me anymore. It's time to let them fade. That was amazing, mate. I felt like Jules Holland there in giving you the introduction. (laughs) right yeah you you vibe with that that energy i appreciate that (laughs) you did your first performed poem on your instagram page a few weeks ago maybe a month ago how did you build up the energy to that was it a big step out of your comfort zone and what was the reaction like when you did it both from yourself and from people who followed you that's a really good question yeah it was one of those things i've wanted to do for a while and pre-covid i was really starting to look into performing live and getting it out there a bit more and and being able to present myself in that more vulnerable way I always enjoy that sort of challenge I'm quite a big like for instance in my work I I speak a lot I sort of do a lot of talking to a lot of people and almost like performing in a way so I have a lot of that in me anyway and I, I enjoy performance I did performing arts when I was younger so it's not something that I'm shy about but performing poetry was a big thing for me performing with my face performing with my voice really trying to get my emotion across and it did take a little while for me to sort of build it up on my Insta. I, I even did sort of a poll just to see what the uptake would be on it like to see if anyone was interested enough or if they preferred to read the words and the reaction was pretty good actually like I, I think it was one of the most well responded generally like people commenting or people asking me about it it was one of the most well responded poems that I'd put up I think people just like engaging with a face and a voice a lot of people I think prefer that to, to reading 
and it gets across like i say it gets across the emotion a bit better so yeah pretty good going back to that poem now mate how do you reflect on it performing it now and when you read it back do you feel like it's a different jay who wrote it to the one who's performing it now that particular one not so much because that's a fairly recent one but i think i do every now and then look back on older poems for sure and a lot of how I write them, it stays with me, kind of like a song. You listen to a song and you know the melody, you know how it goes, you know the words of it. It doesn't change. But then you listen to like a live performance of it, maybe, or your band or artist performing it in that sort of manner, or they do an acoustic version and you're like, oh, wow, this hits different. So sometimes I do go back and I, I reflect on them and, and I change how I emphasize words or I change how I project the poem because some of them are quite fast, some of them quite slow. Some of them I have breaks in like the middle where I can add impact uh, almost like a big full stop in your face sort of thing <laughs> so yeah I think that's where I like reflecting on, on the poetry and I like performing by myself and I'll just sit in my room and read through some of them just to see how I would project it from myself rather than from just reading it. Along this journey Jay what have been some of the responses or comments or feedback you've got from either DMs or people kind of saying it to you face to face about another letter Jay have you had for example comments from boys maybe taking a step back and reflecting or changing the way they think about men doing poetry maybe you know what that would be absolutely lovely at the moment I've had to be fair a few guys yeah but more my closer friends who are people who support me and have that same sort of energy so guys not so much girls a lot more I think for a lot of women as probably is expected in society a lot of women are a bit more able to express emotions and able to express appreciation for sharing emotions too which is a shame really, but also something that, again, try to break this stigma and try to show that men are allowed to have emotions and men are allowed to write about their emotions and portray themselves in a more vulnerable way. And it be okay, I think. And doing this poetry journey for the time you have, Jay, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? Oh, good question. I've learned a lot about how I channel emotions and how I deal with emotions, I think, especially because it's given me the ability to not only reflect on things as I'm writing it, but also reflect on things as I read back on it, maybe later in the day or maybe later in the year, whenever it might be. And it's interesting because you can always remember, especially poems that you write that are very emotional and very maybe heart-wrenching ones that are about love. You always sort of remember how you felt at those times when you were writing it and then being able to sort of jump further down the line and look back on it and be like, I used to be so in love with this person or I used to be so infatuated with this person or I used to be so down on myself uh, or whatever reflection that would be it's almost like writing a journal which I do as well by the way boys it's okay to write a journal I think it's very healthy Um, but yeah like it's almost that same sort of thing where like my journal maybe is a bit more literal whereas my poetry is a bit more metaphorical because I like the idea that other people can relate to it so it's not as specific but it does still hit in the same way I think And just finally, Jay, if there's anyone interested in poetry, especially men who are wanting to give it a go, what message or advice would you give them from your experience first? And also, where can people find you on social media? Lovely. So people can find me at another letter J on Instagram. I don't really use anything else apart from Instagram. So that's probably the only place you're really going to find me. In terms of people starting it, in terms of people going for it or whatever, I think just start is the best first bit of advice I can give you there's no harm in grabbing a little notebook or using your phone notes which is what I do all the time is just use notes on my phone and even if it's the case of you've got one line write that one line down because I can't tell you I've probably got hundreds of just one-liners in my phone that I'm like eventually I'm going to come back to this in a year in five years whenever 
and I'm going to write more. And even if that's the case, that is still better than not doing it. And like I say, it's very cathartic. It's very good to express yourself to yourself. It's a very good way to give yourself a bit more perspective on situations you're dealing with or even just a bit more creativity and a bit more fun. So I think definitely just start and also read. One of the biggest things that helps me write is reading and beautiful, devastating books, not even poetry books necessarily, just books in general, where you can pick up better grammar, you can pick up better phrasing for things or wording for things or just better ideas on how to express visuals if that's something you need help with. Reading so important. And maybe just to shout out a couple of my favorite books at the moment. One of my favorite all-time books is The Book Thief by Marcus Zuzak, I think, or Zuzak, something like that. And the book I'm currently reading, The Kite Runner by um, Khaled Hosseini. Amazing book. Very emotional, very raw, very impactful. But those things also inspire me a lot. So good starting point, I think. We've talked about Jay the Poet. I want to swerve left and talk about Jay the Sportsman now because your sporting journey is certainly not traditional in inverted commas in that the sport you fell in love with was rollerblading. Just tell me how you got into rollerblading and how your love for the sport began. You must have been the only geezer smashing it at those roller discos back in the day, but everyone else was absolutely flying. <laughs> Mate, yeah, honestly. So I got into the roller skating world with a bit of a weird romantic fluke, actually. I say romantic. Basically, the way my parents met was at this club when they were way younger. And my grandparents both used to work at the club doing different things. One was a sports coach. He was a football coach. One of them ran the bar because at that time you could have a sports hall in the back and a bar in the front. And that was apparently a thing. So yeah, that was sort of like how my parents met and how my grandparents were together. But they, as my older sister got a bit older, my granddad was still running the football team. And he'd see these skaters come in in the morning before or after the, the football would start. And he, he sort of told my mum about it and just sort of mentioned, oh, do you want to get my sister to go and do that stuff? Looks like fun. Like there's a bunch of girls skating around and, you know, doing dances and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it just became something that we all ended up doing because, you know, we were kids and we had a lot of energy to burn. And it was a Saturday morning and my parents wanted us to burn energy <laughs> and not sit and watch TV all day. So we'd be up for like 8 a.m., say, or 11 a.m. or whatever, and just go and skate on a Saturday morning. That's how we started. And how did your love for rollerblading grow throughout your teenage years? And what impact did doing it have on your mental health, mate? So when I was younger, I actually I used to play rugby too. And I got really, not bullied, but it was one of those things where the rugby lads would all have something to say about me skating. So I actually quit for a long time before I took it up properly. Quit for about a year just because I didn't like the potential of, you know, not being manly I guess and it through that I sort of really missed it and I still went to like see because I had friends there so I'd still see my friends so I just wouldn't skate and then at one point I was just like actually nah I missed this like I want to go back to it then as I, as I got through as I, as I sort of progressed in that career that journey or whatever you we want to see it wasn't really a career but as I progressed through it I started getting better and I started winning and I was more confident with it and I found it was giving me more emotional strength because I was constantly around lots of women for a start who would be emotional and cry and be happy and show all these emotions that I could also share in and I could also be a part of so I think that was a big thing for me in terms of my emotional agility now definitely came a lot through that sport and those people who I connected so well with and learned a lot from and grew a lot with and they were like family they were family so it was, it was a beautiful thing to be able to share and then also taught me things about sportsmanship you know losing losing competitions 
winning competitions has taught me how to be a good sportsman as well as a bad, sorry, as, as well as a good loser and a good winner. So all those sorts of things I learned from very young age because I was competing and I was training hard and I was working myself harder and the ability to even like, you know, take on critique in a way that didn't deteriorate my mental health because actually the critique was for my improvement. Things like that, which I think a lot of adults still struggle with now. I think sport and skating definitely gave me that emotional agility that I then have sort of progressed through with more of my life. We'll go back to that moment when you quit in a second, but I'm right in saying that you competed at European and even world championship level in the sport. Is that right? Just tell me a bit about your achievements or trophies you won in this period and how do you reflect on them looking back? Is it a source of pride for you? You know what? Absolutely. Yeah. So it was one of those things that, especially at my age, not many people could have said they were junior world competitors at any sport, let alone <laughs> roll skating. So one of my biggest competitions that I competed in was world championships in, I think it was 2012. We went to New Zealand, amazing trip, 24 hour flight. First time I've been on a plane for more than about three or four hours. <laughs> and yeah, like I've, I've met so many amazing people. There's a lot of skating friends that I'm still good friends with now. There's a lot of people that I'm still connected to through my life. So it gave me not only beautiful experiences and, and traveling the world, which was amazing in itself, but also met incredible people. And in terms of like trophies and things that I won, a lot of those, I'm honestly more proud of the journey generally rather than the wins. Cause I'm not, not going to lie. I was, I was pretty good. I won a fair amount and I competed for quite a few years at the world championships. I came fourth at junior level skating up a year earlier than I should have done. So I was actually one of the youngest competitors in that category at the time. I beat the British champion at the time who had beaten me I'd, I'd come second to him that year so those things were like amazing achievements but honestly the journey of self-discovery and, and that sort of thing was like if I look back on it now that's the thing I'm so grateful for is is that the emotional side that it gave me the ability to push my anger out into a sport and push harder for myself to be more confident and be more proud and be achieving better than I thought I could I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing that it gave me and that I've taken into later life for sure. The mid-noughties period we went to secondary school in, mate, it's fair to say was a vastly different time to now. At least I hope it was. When you were loving ice skating, obviously you went through that period where you quit. And also you told me off air that it was these experiences and the toxic masculinity you received and maybe experienced for the first time that it shaped your perspective on masculinity and life. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had this, especially initially when I first started, I didn't tell anyone when I was skating because essentially if you're not sort of familiar with like roller skating and think of figure skating it's like ice skating so lycra sequins sparkles all that jazz it's obviously quite a feminine sport in appearance I guess especially because it was mainly women in the sport there was hardly any men and a lot of the men that were there were gay men as well so that also added to that stigma I guess I use that term loosely because I never saw it as a stigma myself but it was one of those things I guess I was a bit embarrassed about for sure. I was, I was definitely embarrassed and I was definitely not willing to share how much I loved it and not willing to share how good I was at it and not willing to share anything about it really because I was just embarrassed that it, you know, it wasn't football, it wasn't rugby, it wasn't the cool laddie sports that all boys do sort of thing. It was a very feminine sport and it was dance. It, it was literally dance. We did dancing. So yeah, there was a lot of mixed emotions early on for sure. Do you get a bit annoyed now that rollerblading has gone a bit more popular and people like JME and Skepta are taking it to the mainstream? You know what? No, I think we always said this, like it was never an Olympic sport when I was competing and it still isn't now, but anything that helps push it forward, they have to sort of change the rules a bit. But 
it's a great skill anyway because it firstly teaches you a lot about your body in terms of your core strength and all that sort of stuff it, it gives you a lot of that ability so i think it's great for anyone to try just to be fit and healthy because it works you out very well and if it becomes more mainstream because of those things i think absolutely that's a great thing the sport is very underloved in the uk it's a very little known sport not many people know much about it at all so if any, anything to shine more light on it and get people more interested in it i think will be great for it in the long run Another part of this topic I want to talk about with you, Jay, is your relationship with exercise and the gym. It's a massive part of my life. It gives me structure, confidence, routine, and so much more. How does it help you and your mental health? I honestly love working out. So I think, again, because of skating and from an early age, because I had that my whole life and my, throughout my childhood, I was always driven by sport in the sense that it always gave me a release at the very least. And as well as was good training, was good motivation, was good emotional teachings, all that sort of stuff. And I've carried that forward now that I don't skate anymore into other areas of my life. So the gym has been a massive one. And again, more than anything, it gave me sort of structure to my working out and my body routine. And it gave me definitely a lot of confidence in myself. I improved my body. I saw those improvements. And especially living away from home in Manchester rather than in London. I've come back to my family and they've seen obviously big changes in my body and been like, wow, you, you've sort of changed so much or you bulked up or you've you've lost weight or whatever it is. Not that I ever tried to lose weight, but yeah the body changes definitely are if you're aiming for them and you're you're sort of sticking to a routine it's a great way to keep yourself what's the word <laughs> active active yeah active and confident and all those great things that exercise gives you and now i climb as well so that's sort of where i've gone a bit more i've, I've sort of not gone to the gym as much and started climbing more so i've got a bit more core strength in i've got a bit more of that quicker more agile agility than i had sort of just gymming it all the time and how important do you think maintaining your physical health is in managing your mental health as well? I think it's one of the most critical things. And again, like I would encourage parents to encourage their kids to get into sports. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever say force or, or don't make them do sports if they're not interested at all. But it's definitely something that I think, like I say, from all the sport I've done, it's not only given me physical ability, it's given me emotional agility, it's given me great friendships, it's given me great relationships it's sort of altered my life and I would be a completely different person without it and I'm a very positive person I'm luckily someone who's never struggled with their mental health in a sense of I've never suffered with anxiety I've never suffered through depression and I think sport has played a massive part in me not having to deal with those really negative emotions because I've always had an outlet and I've always had something to channel anger and frustration and negative emotions and sadness and upset and, and everything else sport when you do it and you come out of it it's almost that release and you, you you can walk away from it and go right i can breathe again now and i think that's why it's so important to me we've come to the big part of the pod mate which is your journey and i want to dive right in here so why don't you firstly walk me through your early life in northeast london your teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences for you who's the jay we meet here so my early life i think a lot of it i felt quite lonely in a way not really massively like so i, I grew up with four siblings i was middle child of five so i always had people around me I always had friends in my brothers and sister so i never felt lonely in that sense but i often felt left out i guess would probably be a better way and when I felt left out, it was more to do with my school friends, my friends around that area, especially because I would spend a lot of my weekends skating. I often didn't have time, obviously, outside of school to hang out with these friends. So 
I wasn't as connected to them as they all were. They had their sort of groups and things like that. I was definitely a happy kid. I was definitely never down, but I definitely had a sense of slight isolation in that version of myself, I think. When we spoke off air, mate, you talked about this isolation and this idea of turning points you view your life through as a prism. The first one of these was when you were in year 10 or 11, I believe, and you began to feel that isolation. Can you tell me a bit about this period of your life? I think it was when, as you know, year 10 and 11, you're starting to become a young adult. You're starting to understand life in a different perspective to the one you were maybe given and shielded from. So you start to sort of see people in different lights, in different ways, a bit more, I think. You became a bit more emotionally aware of those people. And I found that I had a great group of friends and they were all lovely people generally, but they were also at that same turning point where they were working out who they were and often felt a bit lonesome in that group. Again, because of different factors of me feeling like I wasn't really included, maybe go out to like the swimming park or whatever, and I wasn't invited and I'd be like, oh, why, why was I? I'm not, I'm part of this group, right? So I often started spending time more by myself and more focusing on myself and things that I was maybe more passionate about to step away from that and, and to step away from, I, I felt like what was quite sort of negative energy where I was friends, but also not connected to them in that sort of sense. You spoke there about escapism and you said to me how you loved art and you spent a lot of time in your art rooms in school. Did you find that helped you at all when it came to the isolation or was it merely a brief escapism? I think it was that period of time was more escapism. It was more... I didn't like the feeling of feeling left out or feeling fake as well. Like I, I felt like there was a lot of, as people often are at those ages where they're a little bit fake and a little bit false with each other, not in a very negative way, just it wasn't, I, I could sense it wasn't genuine. So I'd sort of prefer to remove myself from that situation. And art was a massive, it still is a massive thing for me now, but art was something that led me to have a bit of time where I could just do something that would completely take my mind off it and I could focus so steadily on it and it was a great way to escape when I wasn't in lessons and I wasn't feeling included in particular that was definitely a, a good time for learning that more creative side of myself I think. You left for secondary school and joined a sixth form college where you knew absolutely no one tell me a bit about this period of your life did you view it as a new start and did it improve your mental health in any way? I honestly did it was, it was one of those things where I intentionally chose a college that was far away from the school and intentionally chose a college that I knew none of my school were going to, or at least most of my school weren't going to. I think I knew one person when I actually got to that college. It was, it felt like a fresh start. I've only just remembered this now that you've asked this question, actually. But there was a guy that I, again, probably a lot of prejudice myself against in terms of, he was one of the weirdos in school, like as, as people would generally sort of brandish people. And I always went along with that, like, oh, he's not part of the cool group, even though I also didn't feel like I was part of the cool group. I tried to be part of them by joining in with that sort of oh he's a bit weird so let's not include him and this guy and me actually became really good friends in college and he was a great guy he, like there was absolutely nothing wrong with him he was very eccentric and that's what people found weird but that eccentric nature brought a lot out of me and he was very outgoing and he talked to a lot of people and he brought a lot of people into my life so I think it definitely gave me perspective on myself too to reflect and go actually I didn't treat this guy fairly just because I succumbed to that sort of peer pressure that you get in schools and, and it wasn't a very nice thing that I reflected on myself a lot then too, for sure. Before we move on to university, I just want to talk about your relationship with Mr. J. Williams. What was your relationship like in school? Did he help you ingratiate more with people when you were feeling left out? Did he flip between different social groups? You told me that he was a big social floater, basically. What was your relationship like together? Jay was one of 
my, it's still one of the people I admire so much. An incredible person. The thing with Jane, the, the reason I often felt left out of my main friend group is because I, I was friendly enough with everyone, but I didn't really have really good connections with anyone apart from Jay. And Jay sort of found me early on in our school years because our names were the same. That was literally it. He was like, oh, you're called Jay. I'm called Jay. We're friends now. He was that very sort of outgoing, ambitious person. He was head boy. He was all these cool things. Everyone looked up to him. He was great at sports. He was very intelligent. I was very envious of him in some ways. And I respected him so much. I still do. Because like, put it this way, he was cool Jay. I was not cool Jay in our school group. That's sort of where like the isolation felt. So Jay for me was always this guy that I wanted to be like. And me, we became really good friends. I, I'd go around his house all the time. I'd eat with his parents. Again, beautiful, beautiful people, lovely people who I respect a lot. And yeah, we were just good friends. We'd go for runs together. So a lot of my time in school, I actually spent with him outside of school. He was one of the few people I actually did hang out with quite consistently. And we used to walk the same way home and everything. So it was, it was always good fun. And he was always my saving grace, I think, in school. He was my like one true friend there. Given how popular he was and when we were in school, my school, everyone who was good at sport was basically popular, regardless of who you were. And if you were actually a good person either, I felt obviously a lot of FOMO because I loved sport, but wasn't very good at it. Apart from cricket, I was half decent at cricket. If anyone's listening, I can fact check that one. For you, Jay... It could have been so easy for him to just discard you or feel like he was like the coolest kid and didn't want to talk to people like me or you because we were probably those kind of kids in secondary school. How do you look back on that? And do you think looking back now, that was a really big thing for him to do? Absolutely. I think especially Jay in that sense, he went a lot against the grain of what a lot of kids do, which is a lot of kids bully or leave people out. And I class that as a form of bullying and I'm sure a lot of people do because they're trying to fit in themselves and it's a weird sort of motion of you leave someone out and they feel bad and you carry on doing it because it makes you feel good in your group or your clique or whatever it is and I think that's a very toxic thing about school that I would like to think is somewhat broken now but I very much doubt is I think there's a long way for education to go in that sense because it's it's hard to really manage it but yeah there's definitely people like Jay who are incredible and go against that grain and he did include people he did sort of speak to all the nerdy kids and the cool kids and the sporty kids and the emo kids or whatever else group that everyone saw as these little clicks jay had a way of bringing like our collective group was a mixture of all of those people and i think that was a very special thing that jay probably did a lot of and, and had a lot of influence in where he could bring those people together and be a common ground between them so if you're listening, Jay, I hope we gave you as best shout out as possible there. Mate, massive ego boost for you there, mate. <laughs> you can pay me later. <laughs> Let's fast forward to university now, mate, because you told me off air it was relationships which have given you the bulk of your negative mental health experiences, as well as, of course, a lot of the positive ones. You met a girl through skating and you convinced each other to move to Manchester where you studied and you now live. How did this come about? And if you could just tell me a bit about the journey this relationship took you on. Yeah, that was a weird one, actually, because I say weird. I mean weird in a very lovely sense. Because when we got together, we were actually long distance. So she lived up north near Manchester, and I, obviously, from London, from down south. We were, we were sort of talking all the time. We, we had this, as I think a lot of long distance relationships do, and forgive me if you're listening and you're in a long distance relationship. For me, it's just not something that I think I can do again. And only because of the fact that with what we did, we built up this idea of something beautiful and perfect and amazing that we would be and then when we eventually got to you know living together and I moved up to uni and sort of moved in with her I was obviously still young I was like 18 at the time and 
I wasn't very maybe emotionally mature, definitely not as much as I am now, but we made these big life decisions that really affected us and was really hard for us to go through, I think, both in in her own sense. She went from being an only child in her own space and having just her parents and her to having too many people like me (laughs) in her space. So her space halved and she had me always there. Whereas I went from being in a crowded family of seven while sharing a room with my three brothers, four of us in that room to having maybe not any more space necessarily, but having less people around. So maybe feeling a bit more secluded from, especially from my family and, and as a lot of people I imagine go through at uni. It was a big step. And I think we both realized at the time when I moved up there, we tried to make it work for another year. We went from August to August when I actually was there. And it was just one of those things, it was just not right. And we made decisions based on fairy tales that we built up in our minds rather than realities. <laughs> when the relationship eventually ended, how do you, you reflect on it now? And what do you think you learned about yourself? Was it just about emotional maturity or was there something more? I realised I wasn't as emotionally mature as I thought I was. I think that was that was a big thing. As a, again, a lot, probably, a lot of people do maybe when they're 18, 19 years old. Yeah, I had I had a lot of reflection at that point where even the way we break up, I'm ashamed of because I didn't have the guts to sort of break up with her properly and I didn't give her the respect she deserved. When we broke up, I felt like I'd done her wrong by running away from it. It, it became a thing where I was in London with my family over the summer period and I wasn't sure how to end it. And she called me at one point and I just sort of said over the phone, yeah, like, I, I don't think this is going to be us. I don't think this is it. This isn't a forever thing. And yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't very proud of because I felt like I had run away from it without giving her respect because I felt like I knew I was going to break up with her before I left to go back to London for a bit. So, yeah, I grew a lot from that. I learned a lot more respect for people's feelings and emotions generally and also to try and face problems a bit more deliberately rather than hiding from them, which is a, a difficult thing to do sometimes, but overall tends to be a better way to go about it, I think. After this, you met your next partner, which was the catalyst for you starting another letter J. We won't go into the details of the breakup, but how did you feel in the aftermath? And do you remember the moment where the spark for another letter J began? I feel like the months after our relationship were very much, I was in turmoil for sure. And this is another interesting thing about relationships ending is other ones begin. So I was very down. I was very, as probably most people have experienced listening to this just not in a good state because I was so ready to carry on fighting, I think, even though I think I knew deep down that it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't right, it wasn't something that would last for our lives. But from that, I became really close to one of my best mates now, my good friend, Jake. If you're listening, Jake, big shouts to you, mate. Him and his girlfriend, they pulled me through some of my darkest times. And like I said before, I've not really experienced anxiety or depression, but I think that was the closest I ever became to it. They definitely got me through those times and especially Jake, we'd just hang out and we'd talk and we'd sit on his balcony looking out at the view of Manchester and just be so deep in discussion. And it really, it warmed my whole entire being. It grew my soul exponentially and I'm forever grateful for that man. So yeah, definitely through turmoil, there was light, even if I wasn't sure I could see it at the time. I got through that period of time because of that amazing person. In the last couple of years, mate, after this relationship, there have been people who have really helped you open up about the experiences like Jake and given you the confidence to be speaking to me today. How have those people helped you and what can you tell me about this period of your life? Yeah, I've been lucky in a sense. And I, and this is another thing that I look back on 
the end of that relationship because these people wouldn't be in my life in this capacity without my last relationship for sure yeah i've got really close friends i've got a, a sort of small circle i say small circle that there's four of us in this sort of like circle who are ironically just their message group has just popped up as i said that like we planned on going away together to america so that, that that's a big thing where I wouldn't have felt like I had that maybe opportunity to do so because I get very invested in relationships and I often will have or previously have put that person above even myself in a relationship. And I feel like I wouldn't have even explored spending time with friends in this manner where I could, I could be away for two weeks and go travel and go see a beautiful part of the world like America and things like that. So I think there's a lot of good fortune that's come out of it. And then there's other people who I've met even more recently, like my friend Alina, as an example, who, again, just beautiful energy, like people who emit. And I think that's what's really important to me now is when I connect with people who are, I like to call them lights. I think there's a lot of lights in the world. There's a lot of people who are just good, positive energy. And even if you don't want to, sometimes they just bring you forward and pull you forward and make you project yourself further than, than maybe you even dreamed or thought you would. So yeah, really, really grateful for those two in particular, but especially a lot of other people in my life who anyone I have deep conversations with, anyone who I can connect with in that way where it's more than just, you know, hi and hello and how are you? It's how are you really? What are you doing? Like, what's your goals? What's your ambitions? What's your passions? Why aren't you there yet? What can you do to get there? How can I help? Those people are an amazing people and they're very rare to find, but they're very beautiful when you do. And they are definitely lights in my life for sure. And then another big shout out just to my little friend group. So Claudia and Dan and Guff as well. You guys are all beautiful people and you are lights too. Somewhere I like to think I'm a little light in there through this pod. Oh, Freddie, always. Freddie, you're you're beaming light. You're a spotlight. That's what you are, mate. The final part of this topic I want to discuss with you, mate, is your photography journey. Another side hustle. Tell me how you got into this and how your love of photography began, because I can tell you've always been a creative person. Absolutely. Photography for me, honestly, is my biggest passion. As much as I'm passionate about writing, photography is the thing that I adore more than anything in terms of my own passion, my own progression, my own creativity. It started, honestly, really young. And I'm very grateful that I'm one of those lucky people in the world that knew what they wanted to do when they were a little kid. I remember, for instance, when I was younger, we had this little tiny grey camera. It was a little, really crappy, compact camera. I think it had like probably about one megapixel. But if we did go on family holidays, which are always, you know, to like caravan parks around the UK, we took this camera with us. And I remember looking back on photos, I often wasn't in them because I took so many of them. That was often the start of my journey. Another sort of like pinnacle moment, key moment that I remember was there was a guy at like a a sports event I ran, not ran, but I was like part of like a group of kids who were chosen and selected to run like a sports day thing. And this guy was there with this massive camera with this massive lens on it. And I remember just sort of walking over to him and like looking at the camera and looking at him and being like, can I have a go? <laughs> and he just let, he let me use his camera. Like I remember this so clearly in my mind, I took a shot and I like lined everything up and I took a shot of this kid across the way. And the guy looked at the shot afterwards and he went, I can use this, yeah? <laughs> and like, it was, it was just such a like affirming moment for me. I was like, I want to do this. As a kid, if I can take a photo on a camera that I've never used before and have the photographer go, oh, that's a good shot. Like, even if he was only joking, it was just such an affirming thing for me to get me into it. And then as I progressed, I studied it. At, so the reason I studied art in school was because I didn't have a photography course. When I went to college, I knew my, my choice was 
photography and I don't care what else I'm doing. <laughs> and then through things like, for instance, through times that we shared or there were gigs that we went to, we had like school gigs as well that were run by different music companies at the time. And I became a photographer for those music gigs, which is where a lot of my passion, I think, has come from now for music photography in, in particular, is those early experiences where I learned so much about shooting in these low light conditions and, and shooting with these people who are really passionate. And again, I love seeing people's passion and music, obviously, is such a beautiful thing that connects so many people that taking photos of people who make music or taking videos of people that make music is something I'm very passionate about capturing because then we can share it with more people and we can creativity sharing creativity. And I love that idea, I think. And what impact does photography have on your mental health, do you think? For me, I, I've i always adored photography. It's, it's one of those things, I think, where you can really lose yourself in it. It's like a lot of people can read a book or listen to music. Photography for me is one of those things where I can just be myself and my camera and I can capture hopefully beautiful moments that I look at and I'm inspired by myself. And I think that's a very big thing to be able to inspire yourself with the work that you do. You told me about one other pinnacle moment in your photography journey so far that seemed like a real epiphany for you. Can you tell the listeners about that and what it meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually only a few months back where I had that pinnacle moment where, so I did, I did a photo shoot recently with a musician that I met who's a lovely, lovely person, great musician. And we went and shot on a beach and there was this point where like she, she was sort of changing and, and doing stuff behind me to get ready for the next shot. And I was staring out at this beach, which was completely empty. And it was not cold, but very windy. And apart from like a few people walking their dogs and this beach goes on for miles in both directions. It was, the tide was out as well. So the, the tide was quite far away from us. And I was just staring out at the sky as the sun was setting. And it sounds so cliche, but it was just such a beautiful moment where it was, I was like so in awe of the beauty of the world, I guess. And I just thought to myself, like, this could be my everything. This could be my career. This could be my life. This could be the thing I do just because, like, this will be that for me. And I had that moment of, like, complete solidifying this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. If I'm going to choose anything for work, in inverted commas, my passion for photography, that will be my work. And that was such a lovely moment for me to be able to look out at that beautiful scene. And we would shot some really creative stuff as well with some, like, red lighting too. So it was very... I was already feeling very inspired by the photos we were creating and just being able to look out at that moment and be like, my life could literally be just shooting amazing stuff with musicians who are incredible artists and incredible creatively in their own right. And I can add to that creativity and I can share that creativity. That's a, an amazing thing to be able to do. And just finally, mate, what are your ambitions or goals for your photography in the next few months or the next year? And how do you plan to get better as well? Very good question. So in the next, well, few months maybe not because of covid but i do aim to start working with more music venues and music artists in particular as you're probably aware by now that that is definitely a big passion of mine is music and photography too so i, I actually wrote in my, my journal my journal is often a place where i write my goals and my sort of next ambitions and in this journal i wrote within a year i want to try and shoot with a name that's well known so someone like for instance arlo parks or Hon or Eden are all artists that I look at who are maybe not the most mainstream artists, but artists I look at and go, you're big enough to be an inspiration to so many people still. And I think that's a really important part for me. It's people who inspire other people. I want to work with you <laughs> is essentially it. So yeah, that's my, that's my goal for the next, the next year or so. And now I've said it on a podcast, I have to do it. So 
Here we go. Our final topic of conversation, Jay, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include or exclude circumstances at the moment we are living in, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Honestly, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate that I think my mental health, I always sort of go through these moments where at least once a week I'll have just pure contentment. <laughs> like I feel very content with a lot of things in my life and, and where I'm going. I think just because of the mindset I have, I'm very driven towards what I want to do and what I'm passionate about. So I think that really helps my personal mental health. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Oh man, that's a really good question. I feel like genuinely a lot of my biggest advancements in my mental well-being and my mental agility have honestly come from this last year and a half, two years. I've always been quite an optimistic person, I think, but I think maybe I've got a bit more sprinkle of realism in that now, but with that realism also comes a drive to make it better. I think these last two years for sure have been hugely impactful on my mental health, both the lowest points of my life, but also some of the highest points of my life as well. And what age do you think you were when you first had that conversation with someone about your mental health? How did it go? Who was it with? Did you feel like a part of you had changed after it or you'd entered a new chapter? Or did it seem fairly insignificant at the time? Honestly, that's a very good question. I think I started having these conversations more when, let me think, probably some of the first times I had conversations more about my mental health or my emotional well-being at the very least were with my parents. So probably actually a fair bit younger. I remember like, for instance, breaking up with girls, you know, when you're like 13, 14, 15 and being the end of the world. I remember like crying to my mom and crying to my dad. Like I always, I always sort of leaned into my dad a lot, which I, I think has gotten rid of a lot of the toxic masculinity I felt in my life or might have felt in my life because my dad was always so able to just absorb emotions and not, not in a negative, like in a very positive way where it's like, you felt negativity leave you in his presence. And I felt like that's that's a really beautiful thing. And something I hope that I've stolen from him as his kid is that ability to maybe bring worse times out of people and, and sort of absorb it and take it and move it away. And I feel like for me in particular, being someone who is quite optimistic and quite positive a lot of the time, I feel like that's where I can be a bit more of a light in someone else, someone else's life is bringing my positivity to them, even in their darkest times and bringing light in dark times, which I've also wrote a poem about. <laughs> and what triggers do you have that affect your mental health? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. A lot of people talk about triggers and it seems to be very confirmed moments in their mind or confirmed things that they're maybe not aware of. But I don't often have things that make me spiral downwards I think I definitely have triggers for positivity too like I have moments where I'll be, maybe be sat with my friends and we're all just sort of hanging out and enjoying life and I'll just sort of look at them and be like oh, I fucking love you guys like you guys are great <laughs> you know so I, I get a lot of affirming moments and like moments that are triggered like that but they're not obviously negative triggers they're very positive so I think for me that's a big thing where I can often look at a whole situation and be quite open to the fact that Things may change, things may be different in a year or whatever, but right now I'm allowed to enjoy this moment and really engage with it. Just a note on that, like I, I actually wrote a poem about, I was sat in Jake, my best friend, in his living room. And I, just, I remember just watching him and his girlfriend, Claudia, to communicate with each other, just with eyes and just with like their facial expressions and things like that. And I wrote a whole poem about 
that sort of love, how beautiful that sort of love is. And I like really appreciated that moment, having that with them where they weren't even aware. I don't think that I was watching them and so like intently, but yeah, was, that was a beautiful moment. And I have a lot of moments like that where I'm with friends and they do something or they say something or they laugh or they just have a general smile and, and appearance of, of happiness that makes me sort of content. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? As we mentioned, definitely exercise. And I can't stress it enough. If you're someone who's not sure how to get started with it, find someone who you know who you trust who, who you can get into it or find something that you enjoy because exercise is so broad. People get limited. They think like, you know, the typical running or going to the gym. And there's so many different things you can do to exercise. But yeah, I think I think it's that's one of the biggest things for me, one of the, my biggest tools that I use for my own mental health. The other side of that is, as, as I'm sure people have seen quite a lot recently, but doing things that you're passionate about. So photography for me, obviously, is a big one. It's a relief, but it's also a way that I can, I can walk around for five hours if I want to and think, and that's okay, and that's, that's fine for me to do. I can also write, and I mentioned before, as well as writing poetry, I've got a journal where I'll make entries based on if I've had a good day or a bad day or if something's affected my emotions and I'll write about it. And then I'll also go a bit further and write about why I feel like it affected me. And I think that's important too, not just acknowledging that you have good or bad emotions, but acknowledging why and what's causing them, because that can help you to align yourself a bit more and to maybe to stabilize your emotions a bit better. Toxic masculinity is something we've already discussed and it's something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Jay. Hopefully in the next few years and with a few more pods, it can be in a very small minority. What does toxic masculinity mean to you? Is it a an ingrained homophobia? Is it a fear of emotion? And what examples can you give to the listeners outside of the ones you gave about rugby? A lot of toxic masculinity starts with it's different things from school to college to sport to whatever. It lives and breathes through I think everything that men do in this day and age currently, unfortunately, is still a very prevalent thing. And for me, it's, it's it sounds so simple, but men aren't taught to express emotions. That's where a lot of toxic masculinity comes from, I think, is because men are taught to be aggressive when they're sad and aggressive when they're happy and aggressive when they're emotional in any sense or angry because they don't know how to be anything else. And when they're told to not cry, they're told to man up, they're told to you know, boys don't cry, men don't cry, big boys don't cry, you know, all that sort of stuff. Even from a young age, I think it's so intertwined with our culture and so intertwined with general feelings. And men grow up, or boys grow up not being able to express. And this is where I'm very lucky and very grateful in that I had a dad who was very, he let me cry if I needed to cry. He let me shout if I needed to shout. And not necessarily that he ever really showed emotions. He, he might have been a bit caught up in that trap too, but he never made us feel like we couldn't. And I think that was a really powerful thing for us as kids, especially like with four boys, like growing up, an older brother, me and my two younger brothers, we learned that we could express ourselves. We, we always say, like say we're very grateful for our parents that they gave us that ability to express and cry and not just on the mum's side where you maybe would expect more, where you can be more feminine in inverted commas and cry and show emotions, but it especially important on from our dad and from that sort of father figure. So I think, again, my, my sort of general leaning would be if you're in that sort of place where you, you maybe are a dad and you're not sure how to express your own emotions, 
it's such a good thing to encourage your kids to do that. It's such a good thing for you to ask how they are and not just shut them down or run away from an emotional topic and embrace it. And I promise you it will be an amazing thing for those kids and for your relationship with them. We also talk a lot about positive masculinity as well on this pod, Jay. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-awareness? Is it emotional intelligence? Is it a understanding of other people's emotions? What can you tell me here? Definitely a mixture of all of those things. I think one of the big things, probably what I've alluded to, is an ability to express emotions. I don't think as a society we've stigmat that whole idea of men showing emotions. And actually... I've never seen that as a bad thing and I never will see that as a bad thing. And I think that's one of the biggest steps that men can take to be positively masculine because then you become someone that can be an outreach person to someone in need, someone who's struggling with their own emotions, their, their own mental health, their own mental well-being. You can, you can become that pillar for them or that rock for them or whatever you want to describe it as. But you can only do that if you're willing to be open and vulnerable yourself because people won't open up to you if you're not like that yourself. I also think um, me, me and my good friend Jake, we had this discussion recently about masculinity and femininity aren't traits linked to being male or female or shouldn't be, but they are. So we link masculinity to being male and we link femininity to being female. But actually, as like, for instance, poetry and creativity is typically quite feminine, but I don't care about that. And I actually think that men being able to show a more feminine side is a positive masculine thing. And likewise, Women being able to show a more masculine side is a very positive thing too. I don't think anyone should feel like they have to box themselves into, I'm a man, so therefore I must do masculine things and I must be a leader and I must talk over people, whatever else men do. Like I must assert my dominance. Like We don't need to do that. We, we can let people talk. We can let people be vulnerable. We can let people open up. We can let people share. And that will create such a better environment in so many, like in sport, in the workplace, in family homes you know all of those things where if we just take those little steps to embrace more of every other side of us rather than just this this masculine side that we have to fit into that isn't anyone as far as I'm aware like I I don't know a single person who is actually just masculine or in the case of it doesn't feel like an act or it does feel like an act when when they are just masculine and just finally mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe and opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think society has started making steps forward. You see it more on social media. You, you see posts about boys can cry and men can cry. And I think that's a good starting point, but it's not the only thing. I think it needs to be more actively encouraged in day-to-day -day conversations. I think guys in particular, if, if any men are listening to this now, if you haven't checked in on a friend, or you haven't asked them how they are, how they really actually are, are they doing okay? That's a starting point. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that necessarily. I think the scariest thing in this situation is the sake of being vulnerable. No one likes being vulnerable. And it's a scary thing for anyone to do to be like, I am emotionally available and that is terrifying because you could hurt me. And people don't like being hurt. No one likes being hurt. But I think that's where we've got to start. We've got to be a bit more vulnerable. You don't have to give your whole soul to people. You don't have to sort of bear everything you you have about you. But being able to open up and be more vulnerable, I think that's a starting point and that's a step in the right direction, for sure. 
Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Jay for being my special guest on this episode's pod. I'll put some links to where you can follow Another Letter Jay and Jay's photography page if you want to see some of his work in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode of the pod. If you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.